we uh, love movies at our house. We absolutely love movies at our house. In fact, um, every year, the girls, Hillary and Lily and Emma, they, they have a, a huge kind of family girl Oscar party at our house. And so last uh, Sunday night was a big night at eleven eleven Greenleaf Way. It was a huge night. And typically... Um, I'll take Wit, my seven-year-old, and we'll go have a little man time, kind of give the girls their space. We'll go have a little man time. But last Sunday, I wasn't feeling that well, and so we were around the house as well. And and when I talk about kind of our girls getting fired up about the Oscars, I I mean like really fired up, okay? I'm talking, you got to just kind of expand your mind here for a moment. I I walked into our living room, which is where this party was happening, at about 4.30 in the afternoon. Um, The show starts at 7.30, I think, 4.30. 30 in the afternoon, and um, Lily and Hillary are already all dressed up. Dresses, high heels, makeup, nails, hair, the whole works. It's, it's all going on in there. Lily, my 12-year-old, she's serving chocolate-covered strawberries that she's made that afternoon. She, she's got sparkling grape juice that she's serving in champagne flutes to the three girls. Hillary's made ballots uh, of the Oscars. They're, they're casting their votes, trying to figure out who's going to win. Uh, the movies, and of course the red carpet's on, right? The red carpet, that's already on. We're watching the red carpet. So we got, we're talking about movies and uh, actors and actresses. They're talking about what dresses they like and what dresses they don't like. I sit down and start talking about which dresses were modest and which dresses were not modest, right? <laughs> Wit's sitting over in the, in the corner and he's just kind of taking this whole thing in. Every once in a while he'd say things like, Dad, you think uh, Star Wars might win something? No, son, probably not this year. Uh, Dad, Dad, uh, is Iron Man going to be there? Not not Robert Downey Jr., of course, but Iron Man. Is Iron Man going to walk down? No, no, probably not. He's not going to walk down the red carpet. And so then, soon enough... Wit disappears. I think he's probably done with it for the night. But much to my surprise, about 15 minutes later, Wit comes downstairs looking like this picture. Look at these side screens. There he is. <laughs> Even Wit got sucked into the vortex. See, that. And unfortunately, it was just a few minutes later that so did I. Wit talked me into getting dressed up, and this is the video that was shot when he and I walked back into the room. This is going to be embarrassing. Um, sir, who are you wearing? Um, a suit. <laughs> okay, nice, nice. Oh, Giorgio Armani. Oh, nice. And sir, who are, who are you wearing? Giorgio Armani. Oh, very, very nice. And the cufflinks, where, who, what jewelry designer are these from? Bill Blass. <laughs> Oh, very, very, very nice. Whip and your blast. shoes. And wh- whip blast. And what kind of shoes? Uh, who's um, shoes? Miller. Nicole Miller. Nicole Miller. And what are you nominated for, sir? Life of Pi with Michael. You are the actor of Life of Pi? And are you the director, sir? Supporting actor. Supporting actor. Congratulations to you both. You both look Hi. amazing. Congratulations. Hi. Hey, Thank excuse you. me. Good luck. Excuse Hi. Me. Good luck. Clearly, we love the movies at our house, right? 
Now, there's something about movies that this is just really true. You get the right movie, great movie, right scene, right time, right place, and it just, it just does something in us, doesn't it? We just, we just feel it. One, one of my favorite movies is, is a movie called The Greatest Game Ever Played. I'm sure not many of you have seen it, maybe a few. Um, it's the story of, of Francis We Met, 1913. He was the only amateur to ever win the U.S. Open. This is golf. Of course, I'm going to be talking about golf. This is the story. He wins the U.S. Open. But the story goes deeper than that. It's pretty amazing. He lives in Brookline, Massachusetts. He lives across the street from this very elite club where the U.S. Open was played called the Country Club at Brookline. And he grew up in an immigrant family, grew up in a very working class family. His dad thought golf was frivolous. It was for the elite. He thought his son needed to get a real job. He was very aggressive toward his son in that way. And so when Francis came to his dad and said, I've been invited to qualify for the U.S. Open, his dad he didn't approve. They have this heated exchange, and his dad says, you're, you're going to need to find another place to live. Well, Francis goes. He qualifies for the tournament. Ultimately, he wins the tournament over the two best professionals of that era. And there's this scene at the end of the movie when Francis is literally being carried off the course. This never happens. He's being carried off the course, amateur winning the U.S. Open. He and his caddy both. And in the crowd, cheering him and carrying him off. There are are all these aristocrats and elite and wealthy and working class and blue collar. It's like the whole community is cheering for their favorite son and Francis makes eye contact with his father who's in the crowd and his dad's reaching up toward him with approval and they grab hands it's like I've seen it probably 20 times it undoes me every single time you got your movie that's mine it just undoes me right the setting the scene the sounds the voices the the music, the posture of the father reaching toward the son, it, it's, it's like we're there. And when we feel it, when we, when we experience it, when it touches that deep part of our soul, that's when the message of the movie gets so loud and clear, right? The reconciliation between a father and son, overcoming all the odds. Whatever the theme of your favorite movie is, when we enter the scene, something in our hearts responds. Something begins to shift way down deep in the core of our being. The passage that we're in today, it must be experienced to be understood. It must be felt. We have to live it, so to speak to get the depth and the power of what Jesus says on the cross. And so this morning, I'm just going to invite you as best we can to get sucked into the scene. Not just with our mind, not just so we'll go do something about it, but so that Jesus' words later will resound in the depth of our core, in our inner man, as Paul talks about. So here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you this morning, instead of opening your Bible like we usually do and reading along with me, I'm going to ask you for these few short verses just to bow your heads and close your eyes like we would as as we pray. I'm going to ask you to do that, and I'm going to ask you to do the best you can just to let the words wash over you in such a way that they paint the picture of this scene. And and I'll just prepare us a little bit this way. I I want you to know this. This is the darkest saddest, most weighty, heavy scene we probably could ever read. 
And I think the message will feel that way this morning as well. So close your eyes if you're not already and let me read these words over us as we dive in. You might remember it's Good Friday. Jesus is being led from Pilate to his death. Simon is carrying his cross because Jesus can't. He can hardly walk. He's been up all night, beaten, flogged, spit on, hit in the face. And the text reads, two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription that hung above him that said, this is the king of the Jews. You can open your eyes. Please know that I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. I'm not trying to elicit some emotion. I just know that for me this week, it was really hard to understand, to comprehend what this must have been like. Really hard to comprehend the sadness. Really hard to understand the depth of what Jesus is going to say to these people in this scene. And I spent more than 25 hours in the text this week before I placed myself on Calvary. But once there, I could hear him. I could feel it. And I believe that the Lord has allowed me to see his heart and understand it and experience it in a much deeper and more profound way because of it. And my prayer for us this morning is that you might taste that same thing as well. The way Luke writes here, he describes the, the people who are at the scene. It's the way he tells the story. Who was there and what they were doing. If you'd like to look on with me, I'm in Luke chapter 23, verse 33 to 38. You can turn there if you'd like. The two criminals were there, certainly. 
These criminals are going to play an increasingly important role in the text next week, but it's enough to say for today that Jesus was crucified with two thieves, one on his left and one on his right. And Jesus, the innocent, hung there with two who were guilty. All, all three had come to die. Maybe these men were a part of Barabbas's band. They're they were thieves, certainly. Maybe they were insurrectionists as well or accomplices to murder. Uh, maybe they'd been in prison for a long time. We don't know. Regardless, these, these two men were not like the other one hanging there. And this picture of the criminals that we find right here in Luke 23, it's, it's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, where Isaiah says that Jesus will be numbered with transgressors. Jesus, the innocent, will be numbered with the guilty, and that's certainly what we see as we enter this scene. The rulers, the Jewish religious leaders, they're there, of course. This shouldn't surprise us at all. They've been instrumental in every scene leading up to Jesus' death. Certainly, they would be there to watch him suffer and die. And in this scene, they they can't hide the, the hideousness of their hearts. Luke describes their sneering at him. That word for sneer in the Greek, it's a very rare verb that's also found in Psalm 22, where the psalmist describes the picture of one whose status is less than human, whose status is like a worm being scorned and, and despised, and that's certainly what's true here. The rulers, they say to those standing around them, they say, he saved others, which of course was true. They acknowledge the truth of that. But then they say, but if he was really the Christ, really the chosen one, if he was really the Messiah, then he would save himself. And this is where the evil that resides so deep in their hearts is so obvious to us. The evil that resides in their hearts actually ultimately carries the day. See, if Jesus had gotten down off that cross, if he had actually done what they mocked him or taunted him to do, if he had actually done that, would they then have believed him that he was the Messiah? Is that, is that when they would have believed? No, no way. I sure don't think so. No, they'd seen him heal the lame. They'd seen him restore sight to the blind. They'd seen him heal the sick. They had seen him restore people from the dead. If Jesus got down off that cross, they would have just found another way to kill him. That's what would have been true. Their jeering, it had nothing to do with their willingness to believe. You see, they, they wanted to humiliate him while he died. They wanted the, the, the mental and the emotional anguish to match the physical agony. It, it makes me sick to my stomach. The people, those who were just before Pilate chanting, crucify him, crucify him, they're there on Calvary as well. And what Luke says about them, in, in a weird way, it's, it's haunted me all week. Maybe this is because it's, it's where I can find myself in the scene, what, what they do. Luke just simply says they stood by looking on, stood close enough to see, and they watched. 
Some scholars would say it's possible that, that they are, are second-guessing their position against Jesus. I guess that's possible, but it doesn't seem very plausible. It's not consistent with what they just did just a few minutes before. It's not consistent with the posture of their hearts. In fact, they were only, they were only moments before demanding that he be crucified. And I think that shows up in the text, that, that argument shows up in the text. When we look at verse 35, we see the people stood by looking on, and it says, and even the rulers, it's like there's some connection. That word even connects the sin of the rulers to the sin of the people. See, I, I'm convinced that their silent curiosity was culpable as well. These people in their presence, they are participating, right? Certainly no one is running to take Jesus off the cross. No, all those eyes are watching. They want to see him die. It's disturbing. And then, of course, the Roman soldiers were there. They're carrying out the orders of Pontius Pilate. And Luke says that these soldiers, they, they mock Jesus. In the other gospel accounts, we know that either just before they left the scene with Pontius Pilate or somewhere along the road, uh, they took a crown of thorns and they put it on Jesus' head and they pushed the thorns down deep into his skull. They found a faded purple robe somewhere along the ground and they draped it around Jesus' shoulders. They grabbed a reed and they, they put it in Jesus' hand like a scepter and they taunted him as king. Here in this text, we find that that taunting goes further. They offer him sour wine. It was just the worst of the wine. No one would want to drink it. They offered him sour wine up on the cross as if to make a mock toast in a king's court. They're, they're taunting him still. And then they join in with the religious leaders, sneering and jeering. If you're the king of the Jews, why don't you save yourself? That's who you really are. Why don't you get down off that cross? And they grabbed the placard that read the, the king of the Jews and, and, and they took it and they chuckled as they hung it over his head. They stripped him down naked and they gambled for his clothes. What it must have been like for Jesus hanging there on the cross to watch these soldiers beneath him. He's totally exposed in excruciating pain, looking down at his killers, laughing and carrying on over his clothes. Rolling dice, literally, to see who got what. While the man they took them from was hanging right above them on the cross. And it's there on Calvary, in the middle of this scene, that Jesus mustered enough energy to speak he mustered enough energy to speak his first words from the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. If there's ever been something that's tested the core of a man's heart, this was it. Hanging exposed on some wood beams. Metal had pierced his hands and his feet criminals left and right, soldiers taunting, leaders sneering, people watching, and Jesus Christ's heart 
bled love. Greatest love this world has ever seen. I've read this passage so many times in my life. Every time I read it, it's happening again this week. I have this thing in me that just goes, wait, what? Jesus, that's what you have to say to your killers? That's what you have to say to your executioners? That's it? That's not how the movies go. That doesn't fit the scene. Forgive them, the ones who couldn't treat you any worse. Are, Are you sure, Jesus, that you didn't mean to chastise them or condemn them or rebuke them or hold them responsible at least for their actions? No. Jesus' love has nothing to do with how he's treated. Nothing. So while those people looked on him with contempt, he looked back on them with longing. While those people found joy in watching him die, he went to his father and asked him, Father, to give them the deep joy, the only joy that comes, the true joy that comes only in relationship with him. When the soldiers ripped off his clothes, he pleaded not with them but with his father to forgive them. When his soldiers were playing games at his feet, he used some of his last breath to whisper words of hope for their future. When the ruler said, you're not the promised one, he asked his father to promise that he would not hold them accountable for their actions. When the ruler said, you're not the chosen one, Jesus said, I choose you if you'll let me. When the rulers were satisfied, finally, they finally gotten what they wanted. Jesus prayed to his father, would you satisfy the deeper longing in their souls? This is unexplainable, unbelievable, immeasurable love for them and for us. You see, they're not the only ones who wanted Jesus to die. They're not the only ones who have turned their back on God. First John 2, 2 says that Jesus got up on that cross and he stayed on that cross, not just for the sins of those who were at Calvary that day, but for the sins of the whole world. Before you bended the knee to place your trust in Christ, you were standing in that crowd in a very real way, and so was I. As guilty as the criminal on his left and on his right. As disturbed as the people who watched and did nothing. As sick as those who believed his clothes were more valuable than his life. Sneering, jeering, mocking, taunting. And Jesus Christ, just like he does in this scene, just like he goes before the Father for them, he goes before the Father for us. He intercedes on our behalf. Father, forgive Bill. Doesn't know what he's doing. Father, forgive Robbie, Katie. Don't know what they're doing. Forgive Connor and Booth. Forgive Amy and Wade. Forgive Kyle and Amy. Forgive Ed and Rose. Forgive Jeff and Linda. Give them another chance. 
Give them some time. Father, I love them too much to watch them die. You see, Jesus, he could have popped those spikes right out of his hands and right out of his feet. He could have done it. He could have taken that cross. He could have taken that thing and hurled it into the Mediterranean Sea. He could have shut the mouths of the rulers and the soldiers, blinded the eyes of the people watching. He could have restored his own body. He could have done that. He's the one that spoke the world into being, placed the sun in the sky, made the very hill he's dying on. He, he's that one, the, the one that made the wood that he was nailed against, the metal that pierced his flesh the one that was with God from the beginning of time, the one that holds all things on earth and in heaven for eternity together. That's who was standing there on the cross. That's who was pinned there against the cross. He he could have stepped down. He he could have jumped off. He, He could have been done with it just like that. He could have. But he doesn't do it. Why? Because if he got down off that cross, you and I would be finished. That's why. Done. Dead in our sin. And so when those soldiers and those rulers looked up at him and said, you saved others, why don't you save yourself? He said to them, I love you too much to do that. I would rather save you. And Corey Ten Boom writes in her famous book, The Hiding Place, this remarkable account of her experiences with her sister Betsy in a Nazi concentration camp. She writes about this very scene, and this is what she says. I had read a thousand times the story of Jesus' rest, how soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him. Now such happenings had faces and voices. Fridays, the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. We had to maintain our erect hands at sides position as we filed slowly past a phalanx of grinning guards how there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs, I could not imagine. Nor could I see the necessity for the complete undressing. But it was one of these mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page of the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. I had not known. I had not thought. The paintings, the carved crucifixes showed at least a scrap of cloth, but this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and the reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, at that other Friday morning, there had been no such reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned toward Betsy ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin. Betsy, Betsy, they took his clothes too. Ahead of me, I hear a little gasp. Oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. Those three Roman spikes, that's not what held Jesus on the cross. They couldn't hold Jesus on the cross. The only thing powerful enough to put Jesus on that cross and keep him on that cross was love. 
In Ephesians chapter three, Paul exhorts us to, to pray in a very interesting way. He says, this is how I pray. I invite you to pray in the same way. I pray to the Father that the Spirit would give me the strength and the power to know the love of Christ in the inner man, core of our being, the depths of our soul. It's a love that surpasses knowledge, goes beyond our mind. A, a love that surpasses our actions, our will, what we do. It's a love that penetrates our heart. To know the love of Christ is to experience a shift way down deep in here. To know the love of Christ is to be filled from the inside out with the fullness of God. And so Paul says, pray that you might be able to comprehend the what? The length and the breadth and the height and the width of God's love for you. So here's what I'm gonna ask us to do as we close. I'm gonna ask you to pray in that way. I'm gonna invite the ushers to come down in just a moment and begin passing the elements for the Lord's Supper. If you've trusted Christ, you just grab a bread and a cup and we'll take those all together here in a few moments. And while the elements are passed, I, I wanna invite you to pray, to pray just like Paul invites us to pray, that you would know the love of God so deep that there would be a shift, a transformation in your own soul you could appreciate it more fully, that you could comprehend it more deeply, that you would know the height, length, love, and breadth of his love, okay? Would you take a few moments just personally before the Lord to pray in that way, and ushers, would you come down and begin passing the elements?